I'm Andy Berkey. I am a maker and I have a small shop in Bloomington, Illinois. I, I recently had a really cool opportunity to have a research psychologist, Dr. David Patterson, uh, with me here in the shop. He agreed very generously to sit down, discuss the maker mindset with me, and to put it all on video so that we could put it out there to the maker community and hopefully be of some benefit and some use to everybody. I just can't say thank you enough to Dr. Patterson. I'd like to thank a lot of people in the maker community online that I reach out to for questions and, and input on what, what to talk to Doc about. And I would also like to thank uh, Chris Cute from Make the First Cut for his help in editing this down a little bit. So um, without much further ado, I'm gonna just go right into it. If this is a benefit for you, please share it throughout the community. Maybe it can be a benefit for everybody. So all the best. So today we've got Dr. David Patterson with us. Um, doc, tell us about a little bit about your background and um, where you come from. Um, so right now I'm a professor at University of Washington School of Medicine and a large part of my career has been working at a trauma hospital and particularly in a bird unit was my early work and when, um, when I was trying to work with really acute pain I had to come up with something that worked quickly and one of the things that really worked was hypnosis um, surprisingly and there's a whole lot of science to hypnosis now but the Learning about hypnosis led me to think about how the brain works and how we can really get people in hypnotic states. And I think that the, the creative maker world, people are in quasi-hypnotic states where there's a lot going on with the brain that um, happens, hypnosis, happens in hypnosis and deep meditation. So I've always had that interest. And then you and I have had a friendship that's been going on for over 30 years and I've watched your career with fascination go through a lot of different areas and and you know over the past decade culminating in doing fine woodwork and, and really um, renovations the types of things that no one else would touch and then what I've seen is you become part of this community that is extraordinary all over the world and people that um, are basically creators of one nature or another, but getting into this type of synergistic synergistic relationship mm -hmm. where you're feeding off each other's skills and knowledge, but also the creativity, and um, and it's really fascinating to watch the, I mean, you're like a big worldwide brain with the neurons yeah. firing and the synergy happening, and so I kind of watch this with fascination, not being having those skills myself, but um, but just when when you had the idea of us talking about some of the psychology behind what you're doing, I, I really jumped at it. Excellent. Well, let's get into it. Yeah. <laughs> As I've been preparing for this, um, I've talked to uh, a lot of people in the community and kind of was looking for input from them, really using what, what we refer to as the hive mind. And um, so brain function, it came up over and over in my in my uh, you know preparation, um, specifically brain function. How does it apply to what we do? How we create and and the need that it fills for us. Uh, 
My third disclaimer is that I'm not necessarily an expert in the brain. It's, it's part of my work as a psychologist, but I force myself to learn a lot more. Um, and I've also, I think I've become good at simplifying it because I've had to do that for myself. But there's, there's a couple of ways to look at what happens with the brain. One of the ways is to look at what areas are firing as you're solving a problem or you're doing something. Um, there's different areas of the brain that are, are functioning. There's been a, a famous saying that we only use 5% of our brain. It's, it's very often not a matter that we're not using more of our brain. It's that at one time only 5 to 25% of it might be firing, and that tends to be localized to certain areas. And so people have learned a lot by looking at the areas that are, are work, working. So they've learned a lot by looking at the areas of the brain that are working and then figured out what's happening um, with why the, the way the processing is working based on that. So that, that is called localization. So you're looking at which area of the brain is, writing up, is lighting up. The uh, other area is basically has to do with um, electrical waves in the brain, um, usually studied by EEGs. And so we have a lot of uh, electrical processing going in our mind, and it's basically the way nerves are turning on and turning off, and they go in patterns. And so there's an alpha state and beta state, um, and other states that are more connected with relaxation and really focused minds. And so the other way to look at the brain besides localization is basically brainwave activity. And so rather than looking at the particular area of our, our brains, we're looking at, at the electrical activity and what it seems to reflect. So is, is that where we come up with the, the right brain, left brain sort of delineation in layman's terms? Yes, and, um, and that's a critical one. It might be more critical to our discussion than anything else I'm talking about. You know, we have, we have basically two halves of our brain, and the real simple way is to say that there's a left brain and a right brain. That's, that's kind of a gross generalization because if, if you're right-handed or left-handed and, and so on, it switches and it's not really exact, but it's a really good way to understand it. And a better way to put it is that there's a logical part of the brain that's kind of tied to language, and then there's a very visual, spatial, non-logical part, and both are functioning at, at once. Probably the most central message to this community is very often, I believe what all of you are doing when you're really involved with your craft is escaping left brain thinking activity. And, yes. So, problem solving versus the real creative design part of it. Are both of those functioning at the same time or are they competing back and forth? There's a certain amount of competition. There's a large area of the brain or some large neurons called the corpus callosum, and they basically connect the two hemispheres. So there is communication going back and forth. 
Um, what I will say is that the logical or left part of the brain um, looks at the world sequentially. If, if you're looking at a sports announcer doing an overhead for Andy Berkey's life, you go, okay, now Andy's going in the wood shop and he's looking around, he's wondering which tools he's going to use. He's thinking about what he might do for lunch today. And so it's this really annoying voice of Marv Albert going on and on and doing an overhead in your voice. And that's, and most of us, particularly in Western society, can't function that way. We, we need the left brain to get to work and so on. And so it really serves a lot of useful purposes, particularly in hard sciences. And um, so it's, it's definitely not something to dismiss. Mm -hmm. The thinking that comes out of the left brain, however, is very often the source of our angst in society. Right. And Shakespeare put it really well. He said, nothing is neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. And so when we start putting things into dichotomous thoughts, we basically look at life in a different way and it's compartmentalized. And we think that that's the answer and that's what reality is, but it's actually a step away from reality. So even though we really need this processing, it's very often throws us off. Gotcha. You know, a lot of people in the community, and myself included, kind of feel like we are the different children. You know, if you look at society as a whole, are we that different? Uh, as creatives and, and as uh, thinkers and makers, um, or is it just something that's that we are applying more? Are we basically wired the same, or as creators, are we wired differently than most people? Well, I think you're wired differently than most people. There's definitely right brain people, and and when people are more right brain, they tend to be less organized, less compulsive less adherent to time and things like that and um, and instead they tend to think much more in creative terms they they're more kinesthetic they're more visual spatial um, but it's a one of the things that we'll talk about is very few of these things are dichotomous it's not like we're makers or non-makers and so on. It's like we're all capable of both things, but I would say that your community as makers lean much more to the right brain and that, mm -hmm. that way of processing things. Mm -hmm. So where exactly does creativity come from then? Okay, so you ask where creativity comes from and my immediate reaction is that it comes from nothing or nothingness. And so creativity is really when we're not adhere to a particular thought and we're out of our thinking brain and we're really in that void of nothingness and our brain states reflect that we're in much more theta um, type of brain states or uh, and so it comes from nothingness and so getting to that point one of the the most important thing for you, your community is getting to that point where all your pre preconceived notions are out of the way um, and you're really just letting yourself go to a different brain state and um, and pretty, pretty much in, in Zen terms I call that nothingness. So basically that point where the guy's going to light a firework but he has to concentrate on getting to 
absolute to stillness to, to light the fuse. Yes. It's kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, that's one of the mechanisms. And an interesting one of the, the ways you get there is very focused attention. Um, the other way is, is, I think often in your community, is by just losing yourself in your work. Mm -hmm. And when you get in that state, there's a lot more creativity happening. Well, you, you brought up, you know, focus. And I guess in our community, you know, there appears to be a, a maybe a higher occurrence of hyper-focus and, and uh, ADD and, and ADHD. And is that something that we're, that is, uh, that, is that something that is real or are we sort of putting that on our own community? Well, one of your community members posed the question, what's the relationship with ADD and, and the type of work that you're doing and um, why does it seem that you can be ADD and when you're involved with your work that all goes right. away? And I, I thought that was a, a wonderful question. And one of the one of the things about attention deficit disorder is that one of the key components is distraction. People with ADD are very often plagued by distraction. So I'll try a joke with you. How many people with ADD does it take to change a light bulb? I have no idea. Squirrel! <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, and, and basically what, what happens is that when you folks get lost in your project, when you're making, and when that type, that part of the brain turns off, your capacity to be distracted turns off too. So um, you all of a sudden can maintain attention for long periods of time, but the main thing is that you're not being distracted by all the things that would usually distract you. All the white noise. Yes. You have something to focus on. Is that what they call hyperfocus? I'm not sure. Okay. Yes. That's a term that you know I've, I've heard uh, thrown around, but I'm not sure exactly. What yeah, it's one. And every every once in a while, you know, there's a term hyperfocus, and and I'm sure that's part of it. It's just that in my nomenclature, I just can't recognize right, right. terms. So you know, in our in our community, there's not only the making part of it, but there's also content creation, which is you know, um, we're we're either making um, films such as this one. Um, or, or we're watching those. If you're looking at the brain and a creative is watching somebody else make something, it is, is the same things firing as if the person was actually making something themselves? No, it's definitely a step removed, isn't it? Because when you're watching someone make something, it's you're going through certain brain pathways and then it registers in one place. And on the other hand, when you're actually making something, it's different parts of the brain are functioning. Now, I can't say exactly it's which. But what, one of the, the big things as I was reviewing the questions, one of the huge things about makers is the kinesthetics. And we really look at, we really overlook the importance of kinesthetics in our society and particularly how some people are really kinesthetically oriented. You and I have this friend from Max, from Canada named Max, and 
he is very kinesthetically oriented and, and he's, he's aware of that. He has to be doing things with his hands and, and making things. And a lot of people are, are like that. That's the way they relate to the world. And people who relate to the world through visual input, um, thinking, uh, um, auditory input, sometimes don't realize, first of all, that some people are really kinesthetically oriented. And second of all, second of all that for a lot of us, kinesthetics is a, an important way to relate to the world. So one, one of the really important points, I think, for your community is kinesthetics. And that really explains a lot of the satisfaction that you have and mm -hmm. um, that, that comes out of this. I get it. So we talk a lot about um, being willing to be a newbie, you know, to be not good at, at making something. For me, having been a long time around wood, if I get a piece of metal in my hand, I, I am instantly, you know, a newbie or, you know, an apprentice, as it were. What is there? Um, is there firings in the brain that when you transfer and get that sort of almost adrenaline rush from not knowing what you're doing uh, physically, um, is that is that something that that is a different uh, charge in the brain that that you kind of get almost a fight or flight type of of uh, reaction to it? Well, there's a there's a couple of, of questions there, and I think. Um, one of it, one of the, the questions, and maybe the first one I'll, I'll address is just being willing. It seems that your community seems to be partly because of the nature of the community. You're willing to say that you don't have the answers more, and um, the the ability to say I don't know is one of the the, the biggest gateways to learning. I, and I, I forgot the saying, but if um, if you're learning from someone who has all the answers, thinks that they have all the answers, you're going down the wrong path mm -hmm. because no one has all the right answers. So very often it's the person that asks the right questions rather than knows the answer that, that you'll be learning from. But the whole issue of being comfortable with acknowledging that you don't know the answer and, and seeking it out is, I think, incredibly important to the work that you do. Um, and for a lot of left, left brain people, it's very difficult to admit that they don't know. And one of my biggest examples is I have an appointment to a surgery department. That's and. I, I can't do surgery, I'm, I, I wouldn't be good at it, but I don't have an MD. But one of the ways that surgeons are trained is they always have to have the answer. And as a matter of fact, in their training classes, they start off with a large class, and very often it's very competitive and gets whittled down. And so very often their approach to the world is that I have to know all the answers. And that really serves a surgeon. You know, you have someone who's cut you open and is, is messing around your... They better know what they're doing. Yeah, right. yeah, so... Um, but 
so that works in some areas for us, but I noticed in graduate school, I was against an extremely competitive group of students that were much smarter than me. And we go to the, the classes were on curves and I tried to make A's, but they were just always way out of the, my league. And it was at that point I said, you know, I became comfortable with the notion of just saying no. I don't know the answer. And that was incredibly freeing for me because there was, I was no longer driven by having to know the answer. Now, as far as the work that you're doing, what I, what I learned last night about the hive mind is that there, there's a lot of safety in your community about Definitely. acknowledging that. And, and like for you, you have an expertise in restoring um, ancient woodwork and, um, and, and things that a lot, most people can't do and people turn to you. But what you're willing to do now is like, you know, you don't know how a 3D printer might translate into your work. And so you're willing to go out into the community and say, look, you know, I could, I, I really don't know where to start here. And, and the, then my understanding is that part of your community will break, break apart and say, okay, you know, I can do this and I'd love to talk about it. So I'm, let's set, it, set this time set. And I think that's just a wonderful part of this whole process. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think one of the things about turning this into a worldwide community and the discussion is that people are modeling not knowing the answer and letting other ones know that it's okay not to know the answer. Mm -hmm. And so more and more people are, are freeing themselves from the shackles of having to know the answer. And when that happens, that opens up all kinds of doors as well as creativity. Does that happen chemically in the brain or are you talking more of a you know personality sort of opening up? Yeah, in, my, in the way I'm putting it now, and you know, the way you can put all of this is you can put it in neurological terms and social terms and learning. And so there's so many little theories. Every theory is a range of con convenience. But what I'm talking now is a type of socialization that in Western society in particular, we're socialized to where we have to know the answer. Right. And we beat ourselves up when we don't know the answer. And very often pe people go through life that way. But unfortunately, they lose out on so much because they're not opening themselves up to things that they don't know. Well, that brings it to a good uh, point that I was curious. I've been curious about is typically we're talking about people in in the creative maker community that are spend a lot of their time being the loner or being really not understood. What we're finding now is that we can uh, relate to people in the community. And I guess I'm curious, how how is it that people who are typically and historically loners and free thinkers can be enveloped into a very socialized community? Well, yeah, and so, so how can independent loners be socialized in this community? And, it's, I mean, when you look at it, it's, it's somewhat of a paradox, isn't it? Right, right. You have people that are on their own um, and all of a sudden are forming a community. So I'll get back to the community in a moment, but the people that are, um, a lot of the people that are makers and are very creative do go to the beat of a different drum. And when they do that, they often, you know, 
they either by choice or by nature they don't go with the mainstream and they 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 just don't feel very often like they fit in and, and they right. don't because they're almost by definition an independent thinker isn't a conformist right um, and so so that leads very often to a certain amount of isolation and um, but I should say as a parallel concept, introversion is increasingly understood as an underlooked value in our society. Introverts aren't gregarious, they don't, they're not as well socially skilled, but it's known now that they're deeper thinkers. And they, they really take a problem and they go much deeper. They say less, but they go into a lot more depth. So basically what you're talking about, again, is a, a group of um, somewhat independent thinkers that can can almost in some ways be outside of mainstream society and now all of a sudden you have this community where these people kind of on the fringe of normal thinking are getting together and supporting themselves and I think it's a, it's a fascinating but just a wonderful type of paradoxical joining that's going on. So I guess one of the things that's interesting to me is is there a fundamental or physiological difference between those people who create three-dimensional projects or, you know, things versus people who just consume? Just if, if they have a desire for something, they go buy it. it is that a sociological thing or is there a, a fundamental difference? Yeah, and so that, that was one of the questions that came up from one of your members is the difference between consuming and creating. And so one of the things I'll go back to with this question and some of the others is it's not dichotomous. We're not, we're all both creators and consumers. What's, what's apparent with um, your community is that you lean much more towards the creative side right. and creating. And, uh, I think one thing that I can say about consuming in general is that consuming is really a form of insecurity and um, a way to calm yourself by eating more or buying more. Um, so kind of compulsive, well not, you know, shopping that goes to the extreme or eating to, a lot of that is, I mean, can go back to childhood and so on and it's a way of self-soothing, okay. Um, so I would say one of the characteristics that really happens with more creative people that are making things is that they are more secure with themselves and they're not so wrapped up in these, um, in, in feeling better about themselves and going outward to do that, that they're able to go within and, and create. Well, that's the upside. So the downside a lot of times is, like for me, I know, that it feels like I can never turn it off. That it that it's almost like a buzzing in the back of my head. That how does one calm that down and and be able to focus on creating again? Yes, and, and you know we've talked about that a lot. Just the notion of to a certain degree when you your group is doing what they do best, they're in a flow state, which are very absorbed in their activity um, and, and just not attending to other things. And 
one of the things that we've talked about is that if you're in that flow state for too long, it becomes self-defeating at some point. And for that matter, if you're in, in any brain state for, for too long, it just, you get fatigued and then you have to switch to something else. Um, so as you said, there are some downsides to it. and. Um, you know, I imagine what really happens to a lot of you folks is that you really get focused on a problem and then you can't let it go and then you're up at 2 a.m., you know, ah, I gotta solve that problem, or, you know, or I have a new, you know. And so there, you know, there is, it's like everything, there's a balance to, to life and you, at a certain point you have to recognize if you're going too far in one direction. Mm -hmm. You've heard me use the phrase, see more, make better. Um, What's your take on on the need to sort of uh, refill the reservoir, if it were, um, of, of creative juices by seeing new things and inspiring things? Is that is that something that that is foundationally right? Well, same whether you know the see more, make more, and kind of that mentality is essentially right is it's not the right way to phrase the question because it's neither right nor wrong but I think it again goes to um, the notion of balance I do think that the the notion of see more make more is is really critical and it goes back to what we were talking about is being willing not to know the answers and then open yourself up to new information and a lot of people that that are pretty smart and advanced, you know, fall in this trap of thinking that they know all the answers. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're not willing to really look and to see other things. And it's at that point when you're allowing yourself to do that, that you're able to bring in a lot more angles and a lot more information. And people that are able to do that are gifted. But at the same time, like we're talking earlier, is if you do that all the time, if you do that too much, it's kind of the detriment of knowing that you need to eat lunch. Mm -hmm. So balance, balance really is, is a foundational thing that we need to keep in mind. Yes. Um, so ideas, I guess where, where do ideas creative spark, where does that come from? Both from a, you know, neurological, what happens in the brain when there is that moment. Um, where, I guess the, the ultimate question that I'm really trying to ask is, how do we do that? How can we feed that? How can we get more fresh, unique ideas? Well, first of all, I, I think the maker community is somewhat more headed in that direction more than normal. And so there, there's the, and I can't really put it in neurological terms, but there's this notion of how do we get back to that creative state. And it's very individual, and, and usually I would, I, I think that's a really good question to turn back to the community, because you're pointing out when you're working with flow states with Olympians as um, a couple of, you know, good trainers have done, um, they get, they ask Olympians what they do to get back in the flow state, and they all kind of have different answers. Mm -hmm. um, I think always one thing is that 
if you're getting stopped or you're getting bulked up, then your brain is probably telling you that you're wearing out these neurons for now. And so one of the best things is to get completely away from the activity and do something else. Do exercise, do something physical, something completely away from it. Because if you stay in the same task and you're, you're feeling like you're losing your charge and your creativity, keeping banging your head against the wall mm -hmm. isn't going to work. A good friend told me about was looking at a woodpecker and out his window and, and just noticing that think about what this woodpecker is doing. He's getting up in the morning, going to his job, and he's pounding his head in the, the very hard wood over and over again. Um, and it works. But sometimes a woodpecker just has to go and have a beer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I guess the flip side of that is why can't a creative a lot of times when they come up against a problem, they, it's very, very difficult to let go of that. Yeah. Until it's solved. How, how does one attack that, that issue? Well, first of all, it's one of the questions from your community is like, why do we keep, our brains keep working yeah. as a, a problem? And um, that's known in current psychological literature as the incubation effect. That it's well known that if we're posed with a, a problem, um, our attention will be fixed on it, and then our attention will be shifted somewhere else. But the brain tends to stick with that problem. And, right. um, and it's not the left brain. It's, it's more the creative part of the brain keeps, keeps working on it. And so very often the answer pops out hours later, days later, months later. And, uh, but for whatever, whatever reason, the human mind is programmed to, to keep trying to solve that problem. And it's, it's a real gift that we have. And, and one of the, I think one of the things that we can do to take advantage of it is just to trust ourselves mm -hmm. and, re and um, realize that if we're, pointing, if we're pointing our intention a certain way, that we're going to get a certain project done, even if we're failing for the moment, if we have that intention, very often the answer is going to come with us, to, uh, come back to us the way we're wired. Mm -hmm. So some creative minds, um, and mine is probably one of them, there gets to be this cacophony of, of almost like voices that, you know, um, that it is, that's hard to control. And how is it possible to get those things to quiet down so that we're able to focus? Well, I think, you know, talking about when your mind is very creative, you very often go to even dark places and yeah. very distracting places. And first of all, almost by definition, that's a part of creativity because you're really not monitoring what's going on. And, and we talk about, in psychoanalytic theory, we talk about an archaic part of the um, processing where it's more just very basic instincts and colors and, and so on. And part of what, when you're being creative, part of what you're doing is accessing that. You're also, when you're not in thought um, and you're freeing yourself from thought, 
everything's illogical, mm-hmm. right? Almost by definition, that you know, being in the moment is not logical, and yet, and we fight it. The, our logical part of our brains constantly fight being in the moment and being here right now um, because it's a threat to you know rational thinking. But at the same time, it's like when we get out there and when we're in our really creative sides and, and places in our mind, it's it's very often a, a very strange territory. Mm-hmm. And a lot of weird stuff comes up. And to a certain degree, you know, one of the things that you have to be careful as a very creative, artistic person is not trying to talk about all that to you know, the left brain people because, right. because you're going to sound pretty weird sometimes because it is by definition irrational. So if you're trying to explain it or talk about it to a rational mind, you know, and so that's kind of where you have to kind of self-monitor yourself mm-hmm. and saying, okay, I'm way out there now, but I'm acknowledging it, but, it, but when I'm explaining it to people, I kind of have to rein myself in. Is the fact that you're aware of that dark places and the dark stuff that's going along with this, is it that if you're aware of that in the moment, then then you're okay? Or is it... Yeah, well, be, being aware of our dark, dark side, and, and first of all, um, a lot of people don't like to acknowledge it, but we all have a very dark side. Mm-hmm. And in Nazi Germany, I mean, it was really tempting for the rest of the world um, to look at um, Germany and say these were evil people. But it's uh, it, there's a famous Russian writer that talks about the concept that goodness and evil are with, within all of us. And anyone who thinks that there's sheer goodness and they have no evil in them is, is full of shit, or is full of it, we, we could say so. Um, so. So part of the, but one of the, the steps to even become more creative and so on is to acknowledge that dark side of ourselves mm-hmm. and not try to make it go away, but to be friends with it. And if you befriend that, you know, some of the, the dark stuff that comes up and acknowledge it, it basically frees you up to be a more full person. But it's but when you try to when you try to suppress that part of you and say, no, that's not me, or I'm gonna try to get rid of it, rather than befriend it, you're kind of stifling yourself in life. I have a question from the community that um, I'd like to I'm just gonna read it verbatim because it was so well put. Um, yeah. by a non-English speaker, by the way. Oh, I um, think, yes, I think I remember that one. I, I yeah. think it's fascinating, and I'd like to get your take on it, but I'm going to cheat here and read it uh, yeah. straight up. People get into the maker world, and they very quickly start to identify themselves as makers, even if their main job is something completely different. We love that. It's like a secret superhero side of people that once they discovered discover it, it changes their whole perspective on everything. Why is the maker lifestyle something that we can all agree on and something that we let into our self-perception so fast? I've had so many jobs and so many hobbies. I've never called myself a DJ, designer, case maker, bartender, display artist, but I've always wanted to call myself a maker. I think that is interesting. Does this make us feel comfortable to know that we would be able to help ourselves and others with those basic caveman skills that most people have lost. Yeah, and 
needless to say, there's a lot to that question. Uh, <laughs> it's loaded a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But what you know, one of the things that you and I were talking about is that what you're doing is not a hobby. It's mm -hmm. something much deeper than that. And um, and 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 really, it's become part of your identity. But almost by definition, it's a paradox. It's really hard. It's, it's almost hard to describe what's going on with all of you because um, it really kind of defies definition and creativity and in the moment processing and really being lost in the flow isn't something you can put into words. Mm -hmm. uh, now, one of the reasons, one of the things, reasons that I like the way the question is worded is that one of the answers was given at the end, caveman mentality. A lot of what's driving your community um, is evolutionary based. And when we started off in all this thousands of years ago, we were programmed to fix things and, and to survive. And they're, they're very off, there's, there really is a, a, a survival mechanism in all this. And, and it serves, it has served us in evolutionary um, terms. And now we're lost in this internet world, brief attention span and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think people are finding refuge in going back to their basic evolution. Another one of your writers talked about the notion of leaving a legacy. Yes. And um, and it was another beautiful point because it's it's really somewhat existentially based. Uh, I think it serves us to be very aware of our own mortality mm -hmm. and the notion of leaving a legacy. And so, so yes, at some, at some point that might drive us to make things and so on. But it also hits at a, a very basic level. Um, when we acknowledge that um, we're not going to live forever, it really is a, a thing that helps us hone in on what's important. And and this is something that's very important. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's leaving a legacy, but it's also living fully and, and, and really enjoying a moment. And, mm -hmm. I, I, and I think that's very often what all of you get lost in, in a very pleasant way. Yeah, you kind of get both sides of it. I mean, especially those of us who are content creators, you know, there is there is a special joy of, of getting that also made and the concept of the process or the process becoming the project, you yes. know, the, the actual product. Um, and I think that's that's you know that's a great point that we we get both ends of that um for the content creators uh i i would be remiss if i didn't bring up uh, something that I, I was very uh curious to get your take on is uh in our in the uh outline part of the, our, our community is very supportive but uh as you put yourself out especially on the internet there is a phenomenon called trolling and uh, quite frankly, it is mystifying to a lot of us um, the motivation behind trolls, um, what they get from, you know, uh, very narcissistic and, and self-serving comments. But I really want to get your take on that and see, see what you think, um, what that's all about. Yeah. And that's one of the questions that I thought most about is you know what's going on with the trolling behavior and so on and one of the, my first reactions to that is again not to think too much in terms of dichotomy that and also that 
we all have these features within us, right? We we all have been trolls in our life in, in, in certain things, now, in, in certain aspects. Uh, much like bullying, we've been bullied and we've been the, the bullier, mm -hmm. <laughs> whatever, however you would say. But with as far as, um, but, you know, having said that, I think that there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of phenomena that going that go on with um, this type of behavior on the internet. For one thing, it's very safe to attack another, and um, it might be that a lot of these folks really have had trouble expressing themselves and have been beaten down to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And this is an opportunity to to really act on some of their anger without consequences. Mm -hmm. And you know, at one level, they're not really they're very often not seeing that they're doing that, but. Um, another thing is just basic insecurity that um, you know when you feel threatened and and so on you, you kind of react with these type of behaviors and they're really exaggerated um, another thing I would point out that I mean is, is occurring more and more in our societies that we're becoming so attached to texting and the electronic world that we are becoming a nation or multi-nation of people with, who have more autistic-like Asperger-like syndromes. And when I say autistic or Asperger, that means a disconnection from emotional mm -hmm. responding to people. So they're not understanding that the person who created the content, who's reading it, is a real human. Yes. Really? That, and that's, yeah, and that's a wonderful way to put it. But they, they are kind of, they're they're kind of one step removed and they don't they don't see that. So we take it as a personal attack. I mean you have to. But that's not the intent. The intent more is more selfish and more just lashing out. Yeah, but and, but that's one of the things is that we we can't really see what the intent is. It could be any number of things, and it could be. It could be that that this person just isn't really capable of emotional connection, gotcha. and, um, but it could be any number of things. But but it, it's pretty much like it's like anything running into to someone in life that that just really sets us off and and makes us feel judgmental. Um, you know, it, whenever you see this type of behavior, there's usually a type of insecurity that is underneath it. And if you really put, conversely, put yourself in these people's shoes, you would, you would realize that, you know, they've probably been pretty beaten down to get to the point where they have to do this, right? Right, right. Yeah. So what's the best reaction? No reaction. Really? Yeah. And without, you didn't hesitate. Because this is this comes up quite a bit, you know. Yeah. You know, I just want to, you know, put this dude in his place. But in your opinion, the best reaction is none. Yeah. People, people, you know, people often think that ignoring is doing nothing. Ignoring is actually one of the probably the most powerful ways to change behavior. You know, if you ever had a girlfriend or a boyfriend that just started ignoring you, you know, sure. remember how powerful it is. But. Um, now I do understand. With I have had a lot of experiences of watching listservs and communities develop, and I do believe that it's important to have a good monitor in mm -hmm. the background. And and so um, I think of it, you know, if you let this behavior go, you know, 
unleashed, um, it can really become a problem and it, it can really be, be destructive to the community. Right. And so I don't know, kind of in, in your world, if you have someone that quietly monitors this and mm -hmm. if someone does this, just writes them independently say and says, hey, this, is, right. this isn't okay, which is the best way I think that I can handle it, that, that I would handle it. I think when people kind of get into a pissing match or back and forth with with the person that's trolling, that then it just kind of it probably serves their purpose, and, right? And they feed on it. So. They feed on it, and you know, a lot of people. Just as another example, a lot of people are structured by seeking out conflict as a way of expressing themselves. They don't feel alive unless they're in conflict, and so that, they need it. They need it, right? And so that will express itself in you know in your community as well. And so, so I, it is really great if there's someone in the background that's kind of monitoring this and just quietly saying, hey, you know, this isn't okay. Right. And or we have to self-monitor. Yeah. And, and one of the best self-monitoring stuff is just nothing, no, no response. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, Doc, I, I can't tell you enough um, how much I appreciate you coming by, um, taking the time to set all this up. Uh, Doc got these questions about two weeks ago and has been uh, consulting with colleagues and um, putting work into this uh, for the community. And I think I can grab everybody by the virtual shoulder and say thank you very much. You're, you're, it's, just, it's an amazing opportunity for us as lay people to be able to get inside your head and yeah. let you get inside ours. Yes, thanks man, you're welcome. Thanks for, for joining us. Dr. David Patterson.